I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I became more curious, I think. The longer I have written, the more curious I have become. A manuscript left languishing in a desk drawer. As writers, we've all been there. It takes a certain courage to write a book, and at many stages along the way, you might feel like quitting. But how long can a manuscript gather dust before you can truly say that you've quit? Well, the answer is, it is never too late to dust off the covers. The reason I mention this is twofold. One, because today's guest has been working on her upcoming debut novel for 10 years. And two, because her protagonist, Martin Berg, is an aspiring writer who had almost finished his own novel before he fell into crisis and stuffed it away. So in many ways, this conversation is a lesson in never giving up. The novel in question is Collected Works, and its author, Lydia Sandgren, is my guest today. Chapter 1. The Retrospective. Collected Works is a 700-page tome that asks searching questions about motherhood, family relationships, the stories that we tell ourselves, and those stories that we inherit. Decades ago, Martin's girlfriend was the shockingly intelligent and beautiful Cecilia Wickner, and his best friend was Gustav Becker, an up-and-coming artist. But in the present day, Gustav has stopped answering his calls, and Cecilia has been missing for years. Not long after they were married, she vanished from his life and left him to raise their two young children alone. So when Martin's daughter Raquel stumbles across a clue about what happened to her mother, she becomes determined to fill in the gaps in her family's story. I asked Lydia where the starting point for the novel was. What came to her first? It started actually with Martin, who is the one of the main characters in the book. And he just uh, sort of appeared. And I, I really tried first to write about uh, Raquel, the daughter of Martin and Cecilia. And it was difficult for me for some reason, which I did not understand because we, her and I, we were so much alike around like 22, 23, 24, studying psychology, moving around in the same parts of town, etc. But when I tried to write about her life and her thoughts and feelings, I felt kind of, you know, held back. I didn't know why, but when I tried to write about her father, Martin, it was so much more simple and easy and you know, lots of things just appeared in my mind. And, and he, he was one of the, I, I had some, several starting points, actually. Martin was one of them. I wanted to write about a middle-aged man who was, as I thought then, uh, rather mediocre, maybe even, you know, something of a failure. And I also had the idea that I wanted to write about a mother who left her family never to return. And uh, the third point I would say was, I wanted to explore the relation between the past and history. So I knew that I wanted these two levels of time and the interaction between the two. So that's where I started when I was 
around 20. And I have written, I, I've been working on this book for almost a decade. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll get to that because that's okay. <laughs> Fine. Let's come back to that because I have been desperate to know the answer to that question. All right. So let's stay with Martin then. Yes. So I get the sense that Martin, when we first meet him, he is in his study surrounded by books and papers. And there is this whiff of a life that hasn't necessarily ended up as he would have hoped when he was young. Because when we do see him in the past, and it's interesting that we only meet Cecilia, the wife, really in the past, but there is this haunting refrain of her that comes through in the present when Gustav's posters for his retrospection come up, retrospective, sorry, come up, and she is all over town that I think is very, very powerful. But this is a man who, when he was younger, had his whole life ahead of him, could have been anything he wanted to be, could have been a literary sensation, and actually is none of those things, right? He's kind of, he's been, I guess, hamstrung by the fact that Cecilia has gone. We don't know where she is, but that is one of the the plot lines in it. And he's kind of literally just curled up on his study floor, surrounded by mementos of a life that might have been right that's that's how we first see him yeah I think he's um as a young man he has a lot of ideas about what life will be not necessarily about what he will do with life but what like automatically will come to him and um, he has this great love of literature I think but I'm not sure he really loves to write. He loves to read and he's a big reader. And he's, uh, I think, moved by what he reads uh, at a young age. And it's, uh, it has an impact on him. And he tries very early on when he's a teenager, <laughs> like I did myself. You know, he kind of stages this uh, author setting with books and cigarettes and uh, a typewriter and it just starts off and um, I think he's more in love with the picture of his, himself as a writer than the actual you know business of writing which is uh, sometimes very dull and like a sense of constantly not succeeding in in what you want to do yeah the the reality is very similar to acting is that it's a re, it's a repeated exercise in failure yes is is what it is i mean that's the reality of it people you're right people do think it's glamorous and the audience base for this show are predominantly writers or people interested in the world around them and for the writers in the audience that's the daily reality is that this is a constant exercise in failing better which is the famous quote, isn't it? But yes, he likes the idea of being a sophisticated literary figure. The reality is he's really nothing of the sort, is he? he he's not com a complete failure because he's a publisher and he has his own small but still uh, respectable publishing house. And he kind of stumbles into this uh, publishing business uh, when he's rather young, actually, and, he, you know, he has to do something to, to earn money. And he thinks, well, maybe I should try. I could publish something. Maybe we could, I could, well, at least I can try. It's, it's not his big dream, you know, being a publisher, working in the publishing business. But he tries and he, he turns out to be rather good at it. 
you know, running a publishing house, it's not, it's not that easy, I think, especially not today. <laughs> and just the fact that it has survived and he's constantly, constantly, you know, publishing some rather good books. I don't know. I have in my mind, they are at least. So he, he has a literary talent, but not maybe the kind of talent he, he wished for. Certainly not the success that he would have wished for, which is interesting because his friend or estranged friend from years ago now, Gustav, who is an artist, when we meet him in the present, he is about to have, as I said, this retrospective. And there are posters of his work all over town. And some of them contain the image of Cecilia, who sat for him much, much younger in their lives. They were friends years and years and years ago. And there is a sense that Martin begrudges Gustav his success in the present day now, because Gustav has reached a very different stage in his life. And in and around all of that, as you say, he is this publisher, and he gives a book to German, to Raquel, to read. And the two things collide, a really interesting point. She reads the book, discovers something that sets her on this journey of trying to find Cecilia, her mother, at around the same time that the posters for the retrospective go up. So in and around all of the moving parts between past and present and potential future, you've got now this search. So we're now off and running in an attempt to find Cecilia. And we won't talk about how that journey ends but as a plot device, it's a very good one because in a way it doesn't matter what happens. It's about the journey. It's about that journey of discovery and of why the hell did she leave? Can you ever really get an answer to that? Why? What would compel a mother to leave her family and her children behind? What kind of mental state was she in? What happened to her? What happens if we find her? You know, all of these questions are really what drive the story, not whether we find her and get answers to these questions. That's what the rest of the 732 pages in English are really all about, isn't it? Yes. You know, when I started to write this book, I had an idea that I needed to know everything about Cecilia. Like I needed to have it all figured out uh, before I started to write or, or or before I finished the book, at least, uh, like, you know, a puzzle with all the parts coming together. And uh, I had, I remember for several years, I tried, you know, to construct a plot that would make sense. And this was not very fruitful for me as a writer, but rather when I started to to treat Cecilia's disappearance, which I felt very deeply was like the center of the novel, when I started to treat it as an, an enigma, a puzzle or a riddle, you know, almost to be solved, that was when I was really able to start writing all this and exploring it rather than, you know, providing answers to the readers. For me, the writing process and maybe reading as well, is much more about finding the questions rather than the answers for something. And while writing it, I was circling, you know, around these questions that you mentioned, why did, why did she leave? What, what will possibly make a mother and a, a person abandon her family and her career as well? 
Chapter 2, Nothing But Bruce Springsteen I was spellbound throughout reading collected works, not just by the complexity of the plot, but mainly from the musicality of the writing. I have never read anything that reads so much more like a piece of music than it does a piece of prose. We get an early taste of this in the opening chapter. I'll attempt to do it justice. It was a summer afternoon in the year he was turning 50. A quivering heat enveloped the city. The windows overlooking the street were open and he could hear laughing children, ringing bicycle bells, the distant bass line of a song he didn't recognise, a tram clattering down Karl Johansgatten. The sounds echo through this book. And this is not just isolated passages, this is throughout the entire novel. And I really wanted to know how on earth Lydia pulled this off. That makes me very happy to hear, because actually I am, or I was rather, a musician. And I've been very much inspired by music, maybe even more than other works of literature, I think. When I started working on collected works, I was around 20. I worked as a mailman, and for a year I listened to nothing but Bruce Springsteen. Uh, in my, Fantastic. You know, I had this iPod and uh, for a year only Bruce Springsteen. I decided early on that I wanted to strive for a sort of prose that sounded a little bit like Roy Bitton is playing the piano. Roy Bitton, who is the pianist of East Street Band. Right. So he's kind of piano playing. I have this, um, you know, feeling I wanted the atmosphere of that. Also, uh, you mentioned rhythm. There has to be kind of beat, you know, to to the sentences. And I can tell immediately when I read something that I have written, if it has, uh, you know, a good beat or if it's just wobbling around uh, without no real shape to it. And... I started out, I, I've been writing all my life, but I have also been playing music all my life. When I was a child, I played the piano, and later on, I had a, a rock band and I was playing the electric guitar, etc. And I have been writing songs, especially when I was a kid. Music was a big, big part of my life. And it was rather uh, natural to me, I think, turning to music as a source of inspiration or like, um, this inner feeling when you write, it's like when you write a piece of music or when I write a piece of music, sometimes, you know, you just play around and then you feel, oh, this chord is right or the melody is going this way. And you don't really know why. Uh, there is no intellectual idea uh, behind it. It's just a deep feeling of, uh, well, this is how it goes. Like, this is how the song goes. And... Uh, I feel very much like that when I write. I know when I find the right tune or melody and write like beat or rhythm in the in the prose. The music is so, I think I, I've got it in my body <laughs> somehow. There's also this kind of, you know, you're working up, you have this intro and then there's the uh, the verse and then comes the chorus later on, but you have to kind of restrain yourself a little in order to give power to the chorus line. Uh, so I think I, I'm th that has influenced me a lot. 
I mean, it seems extraordinary for me to say this, given how long the novel is, but as long as it is, it is extraordinarily restrained. And what I find even more incredible about everything that you've just said is that I've read it in a language you didn't write it in. I've read the book in translation and it still has that sense. I wanted to ask you, how different is the book in English than it was in its original language? I think uh, it feels not very different at all. It's a very good translation by by Agnes Brumé. It's a beautiful translation. I think she has captured some kind of I don't know some kind you know some kind of feeling <laughs> in, in in the in the writing that feels um, very familiar to me. Uh, so reading it in English, it's. It's like seeing a picture of yourself or hearing your voice recorded. It's, it's deeply familiar and in some way, oh, it, is this what it sounds like? Okay, all right, of course. It's, uh, you know, a little bit of distance, but you immediately recognize it. The publishing industry is very good and very quick to say, readers of this, if you liked this, you'll love this. And sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. The reference that came to my mind throughout this was The Blazing World by yeah. Siri Hustvedt. And, you know, that was on the book, a long list, right? And and obviously this is a debut novel. I know it took you 10 years and we'll come on to that because I'm desperate to talk about this in a moment. But was that in any way a, a reference for you? And I, I'm thinking particularly about artists and embittered artists and their battle against their art and their craft. But that to me, it read like a Siri Hustvedt novel. It really did. Yeah. I loved uh, the blazing world and uh, especially the, the portrait or, or rather the like how she invents the works of art. Yes. Uh, it's like uh, she really uh, takes pleasure in she, she can be an artist, but in, in fiction. So it, it feels real, the art in the novel. And um, that uh, made a, a, a huge impact on me actually reading it. It was so rich, uh, the art, uh, the art theme and, and how she, she does it with the, around the art. And also this love of telling, not only telling a story, but, you know, presenting a world to the reader, which I think Hustvedt does in her novels. It's so rich and, you know, full of people and, you know, you start to look at them and you can look a little bit more closely and they, they come off as real. So let's talk about that. I, I had a I had an idea of the order of the questions that I would ask you, and I've now given the answer that you gave me earlier, completely changed my mind. So on that then, it took you 10 years to write this. So let's start with you as a human being then, because I think I'm very interested in this from what you just said about these people and really feeling them and feeling their existence. Do you miss them? Do you miss these characters now you're not writing the book anymore? Yes, I do. I miss them a lot. And I miss spending time in that world. For me, a great part of the joy in writing is inventing the world and spending time in it. And collected works or the universe of collected works was it was so wonderful to be in it. I mean, it's a it's a very realistic novel, and it's set in Gothenburg, and uh, in a lot of details, it's very you know close to reality, and but still, it's uh, it was for me a lovely world to be in. Sometimes, you know, when I read from the book and readings and so on, I get this you know 
kind of sense of longing. Uh, oh, I wish I could be there again. And I can't, you know, it's uh, the book is uh, I finished it. And, and that's that's always I love talking to authors about this because that's always the challenge, because when it's just you and it's not necessarily working very well, it kind of doesn't matter because nobody's seen it yet. Now, this is in 17 countries and counting, right? Everyone's seen it. Everyone's got an opinion on it. Everyone's not spent 10 years with it. I spent a few short weeks with it and I miss them. I'm delighted to know that that you do. But nobody really of all of the people that I've met on this show. Nobody sets out to write a 700 page debut novel that will take them 10 years. So at what point did someone else see this and what was the reaction? Did you did you drip feed this or did you just send the entire manuscript off with a hey, my name's Lydia, please yes. read me? Yes, that's exactly what I did. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I remember I had this you know, almost physical sense when I, I pushed the send button. I just slipped down under my desk and I thought, what on earth have you done? Right. Uh, they are going to laugh and laugh and laugh at this. What what kind of maniac does this? Was what I thought they would think at the, the publishers. And... Uh, and I had actually, to be fair, some some you know chapters uh, had been like I had tried during all this time to try it on you know some friends or some some boyfriend I had back then, but I realized that you know asking someone to to read your manuscript that's a big favor to ask, and um, nobody ever read the whole novel before I submitted it. I had no reader, you know, continuously involved in, in working on the novel, which I now am very glad for, actually, because I don't know who that could have been. You can't really ask, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends and best friends or mothers or fathers. You know, they can, of course, they can read, but it's very, very difficult to have a, a, an opinion on, uh, on a manuscript that is helpful for the reader. Uh, you know, if I let my mother read it, she would say I, I, I did a fantastic job, whatever she read, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean it is fantastic. Chapter three, a decade of change. How much have you changed over the last 10 years? Are you the same person you once were? It's crazy to think you can begin to write the first pages of your book when you're in your 20s and only find yourself putting down the final words in your 30s. Lydia has literally grown up with this book, with these stories and these characters, and I wonder how time has influenced their evolution. Would this book be the same beast it is today if she'd finished it in two years? Not only has she changed as a person, but surely also as a writer too. Of course, uh, I'm very glad I did because the first drafts of this novel, it's it's not good at all. It took me a couple of years to find my, I think the cliche goes to find my own voice, uh, but it's a good uh, expression because it's really what is it is about. I was very self-conscious at the beginning. When you play music, you, you start playing other people's songs. You never start off with you, you know, writing your own music. 
and you you sit at your room with the guitar and you practice for hours and hours you know Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen or whatever and I think my first years of writing was a little bit like that I uh, imitated and um, I tried you know to find my own um, my own way of sounding or my own sound <laughs> and uh, it took a couple of years before I I could just uh, you know write without thinking about how I wrote all the time. I remember I had a period when I, in the beginning of this uh, novel or writing this novel, when I was thinking about how, how to create a sentence. How does one make a good sentence? How to put the words together? How does people do it? So I, I had to just write and 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 write before I, I could do it, you know, in a natural way or a way that was natural to me. And uh, I think I also changed a lot in, as in, you know, having ideas of how other people are and what myself, what I was myself. I became more curious, I think. The longer I've written, the more curious I have become. And an important part of my, uh, my process was, uh, was that I, uh, I studied to be a psychologist. So I think five years of the writing was uh, study, my years of study. And five years was like my years of working or my first, first year in the profession. And I wrote a lot more in those latter years. So when I was a student, I was, you know, I had so much time. I could always, you know, I wrote a little every day, but um, I could always do it tomorrow. And uh, there was a lot of things I just didn't know about human existence. So getting older and starting to have, you know, a real job was very important experiences to me. I think it, it made it possible to write out of curiosity, without self-consciousness. I was somehow liberated when I started to work. I felt like I became more free, if it makes sense to you. It does. I, I, I've always thought that the, the job of a writer is really to just keep asking the question, why? Why did she leave? Why did she abandon her family? Yeah. And if you can work out the answer to that question, everything else will fall into place. Even if you don't give us the answer to the question, it doesn't matter because in a way it's none of our business. That's for her. But for you as the writer to at least have an understanding of that, that will inform everything else. And what I particularly like about the structure of the book is that I love seeing characters in their early years knowing as a reader what happens to them later because of course they don't and they don't know and they have yet to make all of the choices mistakes screw-ups whatever it is that make them the people they will become and that can both be funny it can be heartbreaking it can make you want to crawl into the book and grab martin and say look this won't end well. You need to, you know, you need to get a grip on this. And I find that 
I find that fascinating. And and a huge amount of this book is ex- is an exploration of why, you know, why have these characters ended up like this? And as I say, the answer doesn't matter. It's not about that. It's about understanding that we all change. And right at the very end of the book, and I would encourage people to get to the end of it and really have a think about where we've ended up. There is so much that's explained, but so much that's not explained as well. And I find that absolutely fascinating that that's how you left it. Even after 700 plus pages, your capacity to surprise me, because by this point, I'm pretty confident I've worked everything out, right? Because there's a lot, (laughs) there's a, there's a, There's a lot of source material. And on that, here's another question for you about the writing process. If this is what you put in, there must be a massive folder somewhere on your computer or a bunch of notebooks under your desk that is stuff that you cut, right? How much did you cut? I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) It's so much. And not only, you know, that I cut, but I rewrote. So I had... I found I just moved um, to a new apartment a year ago and I found like Martin does in the beginning of the right. novel. I just found these boxes with manuscripts and writings and I thought, oh my God, did I really do this? If I just put them on a pile, uh, all the manuscripts and all these versions of the book, it would be like a meter high. It's so much. I don't even want to think about it, actually, because now I'm doing that all over again with book number two. You know, when I write, when I wrote Collected Works, I didn't know what was ahead of me. And if I did, I'm not sure. Well, I'm very stubborn and I really like to write. So I think I I would have done it anyway. But I was somehow protected by, you know, my innocence and my... um, and my foolishness, actually. Oh, completely. Uh, I yeah, I, I totally yeah. relate to that. I mean, people have often said to me, how long did it take you to write your first novel? And, and the answer is always the same. And, and it's the truth. It was it took a year to write and four years to rewrite, you know, and, and that's really it. And And I live as a writer. I live by the premise of never again until next time, because <laughs> Because actually the biggest problem, Lydia, I think with all of this is that I often say to people who are considering writing, you know, they would like to be able to write. And I said, the best thing that can happen to you is that you try it and realize you don't want to do it. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you wake up one day and say, this is the life I want to live because that is not an easy life that essentially you almost risk becoming Martin right, as a writer, because it's hard. It's really hard. And everyone has an opinion. And you do sit there, as you say, and you think about sentence structure. And where do I start? What's my jumping off point? What's the why? And that's really difficult. And I look at some of my own early words, and I'm horrified by them. But I wouldn't be the writer I am today without them. So to hear that you're on book two is both thrilling and I also feel sympathy for you at the same time because you're voluntarily doing this all over again, right? Yeah, I just, just this very week, I I deleted a hundred pages or so, several months of work. But it's not, you know, um, 
it's not like it's worthless or useless because never, never. It, it, it leads me to the point where I need to be. So I'm rather confident that, you know, this is the path I must walk <laughs> and it has to take the time it takes. And uh, I, I really think it's fun doing, you know, sitting with the sentences and the why of the novel, you know, even though the why on a micro level, okay, here she wakes up. What is the first thing she does in the morning? Does she stay in bed? Does she rise early? Does she have to have a cup of coffee before her brains start to function? You know, there's so many choices. And it's lovely to be in that um, part of the writing when the story is still, when, you know, when, you, when you're building the world. That is the best bit. Yeah. Because you haven't got it wrong yet. No. You know, you're just playing. You're just playing at this world and the characters will find a way to tell you what their why is. They'll find a way because if you make them do things they don't want, they will react badly and they will they will rebel against you. So I would encourage you to enjoy this bit because this is the nice bit. What, if anything, Lydia, can you tell us about book two? Well, I think it's going to be a big one as well. And <laughs> of course, it's you. Of course, it's a large book. It's about if Collected Works is a novel that explores friendship and um, parents-children relations. I think this next one will be concentrating on on love between grown-up people <laughs> in a broader sense, like the love, love and marriage. I think of it, it's, it's not um, a follow-up story, but it's like in the same kind of themes, same kind of motives as in Collected Works. And music will take a big part in it. Classical music and rock music and all kinds of music, I think. And also the theme of, you know, learning how to do something. What does it look like? You know, go the process from not knowing ever anything to learning how to do it, which was essentially like my last 10 years of uh, like the school of collected works. I have been very preoccupied with this experience of, of moving forward. How does it really happen? How do you, uh, how do you learn? How do you accomplish something? Because it doesn't come easily or like automatically. It's it's work and it's a process and it's um, and I think that people today, at least some some people, has this fantasy of things happening just like by themselves. Or people feel that they want to write and they try to write and it's uh, and of course it's uh, not it's bad, you know, your first draft and. Uh, I think I want to explore, you know, this uh, that we talked about earlier, the art of failing better. I Regular listeners will have heard me say this many times, but as writers, we should understand that the first draft is never right. So don't waste time getting it wrong, because that's really where all this starts. The few short weeks I spent with this book seems like such a terrible deal for you, given that you spent 10 years. So I would like to thank you for the 10 years. 
It was a pleasure and a privilege to read you. If you are listening to this on the day of broadcast, Collected Works by Lydia Sandgren is out tomorrow. It is big in every single way. It is also an absolute triumph. Lydia Sandgren, it has been the hugest pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Lydia Sandgren for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? A big part of the writing process is discovery. You don't always need to know everything about your characters before you start. Often, you can let the story guide you. Sometimes, it's finding the questions, not the answers, that's most important. For Lydia, this comes naturally, but it's such a fascinating way of writing. I challenge you to add a sense of musicality and lyricism to your next piece of writing. Think about the beat and the rhythm and see where it takes you. And finally, when you inevitably have to cut huge swathes of your writing and rewrite chapter after chapter, don't see it as wasted time. It's all leading you to where you need to be. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up for the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events, titled Inside Stories, are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 